This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Next up, it's my uh, extreme honor to uh, introduce uh, uh, distinguished professor uh, Mario Molina. Um, he is a man who needs no introduction. I only make that statement by the fact uh, he's number one in the selfie poll uh, outside in the, in the patio. And as, as, uh, as Ram last night at dinner perfectly stated, that his work that led to his Nobel Prize <clears throat> will, in fact, <clears throat> excuse me, be etched in history. Professor Molina. I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to uh, talk to you uh, this morning. Uh, I put this up here. You can see what's my homework to talk about advising the presidents of Mexico and the U.S. And what can we expect of uh, COP21? I'll try to do that in just a few minutes, and if there's time left, I'll also give you some thoughts on my perception of uh, some policy and communication issues connected with, with climate change. This is just a summary of what this uh, United Nations Framework uh, Convention so, on Climate Change, the UNFCC process, has started, as you can see, in, in, in Rio de Janeiro in 1992, but the COPs, the Conference of the Parties, started in 1995, and the, uh, there are a lot of expectations for Paris. Uh, the Paris Climate Conference, the COP21, for the first time in over 20 years of negotiations, aimed to achieve a legally binding and universal agreement with the aim of keeping global warming below 2 degrees C. As you see, that's connected with the meeting here with, with the carbon neutrality project. But the, see, the, the main message is <coughs> this has been 20 frustrating years. Not very much has happened. Okay? The one perhaps uh, notable event was the Kyoto Protocol, which, as you know, was not ratified by the United States and by other countries, but it has a very big problem, a flaw that is now fortunately behind. And it is that it was uh, arranged so that only developed nations would have to do something about climate change to begin with, and developing nations, emerging economies would come later. That, that's obviously not sensible nowadays, and uh, so uh, uh, that's one of the reasons the Kyoto Protocol didn't really take off. But the, 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 there's a big challenge. The two-degree challenge is uh, actually not expected to be reached with, with the commitments in Paris. But nevertheless, it's a very positive step. At least it's pointing in the right direction. And the hope is that in, in the next few years, we will do better reaching that goal, but I'm going to elaborate a little bit more on that. First, let me go back and make a few comments about the two degrees, and that uh, happens to some extent in the Copenhagen 
accord. Uh, what happens is that in this particular uh, COP, uh, 2009, there were many heads of states, and over a, a hundred of them agreed on, on, on these uh, statements, that namely to hold the increasing global temperature below two degrees Celsius. Now, that was only the heads of states, the, the negotiators didn't quite agree that they thought that was their job. But nevertheless, this is an important uh, point to make because uh, practically all the heads of state agree with this. Now, where do the two degrees come from? Um, it's not quite what uh, it's often stated that it's what the science tells us. Okay? There's no sharp boundary that if the temperature rises less than two degrees, not much will happen, but above two degrees, we're really in danger. It's really more a, a compromise, a commitment. Uh, it's something reasonable that will uh, keep the economy in, in very reasonable shape. And indeed, going above two degrees is, uh, is quite risky. I'm going to say a few more words about that, but it, it's really that... Uh, sort of mix of economics, science, and practicality. What is feasible? Now, even the, these two degrees, which again is meant not to be terribly fast so that the economy can uh, do well, it's an enormous challenge. Okay? The idea is for the, the concentration of, of uh, greenhouse gases, uh, CO2 equivalent, not to go above about 450 parts per million. As you know, there are some efforts and some groups that try to keep this temperature rise less than one and a half degrees and the concentration and not to rise above 350. Well, that's already, that's already gone. Okay, we are, we are now at 400 already in terms of, of CO2. So, but nevertheless, this is Extremely challenging, but you see that's very much in, 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 in uh, <clears throat> line with, uh, with the carbon neutrality project, with the summit that we are participating here with. Uh, so one of the <clears throat> important questions that I was alluding to is, is this feasible? Well, the answer is in principle, yes, there's no simple uh, sort of... Uh, <clears throat> magic solution. You have to do many things at the same time, energy efficiency, renewable energies, and so on and so forth. But a big question is, how much will this cost? Okay. Is, is this at all possible? Because there are one of the myths that goes around is that uh, even if indeed climate change is a big worry, we cannot really do anything about it because it will just ruin the economy and will thousands of mil millions of jobs will be lost. That's really a myth. And th th what I'm pointing out here is what uh, the economists, the, the group of experts have done. There are, of course, different opinions, but this is one of the perhaps best known ones from uh, Nick Stern, the, the Stern report that came out already some years ago. And the, the point to be made is that if you... The, the, go about creatively trying to reach this goal. If you do it in a clever way and if you do it on, on a global scale, it can be a, a modest price, maybe 1%, 2% of global GDP. And if you look some decades ahead, that, that 
eventually is just within the noise, the economic noise of the system. So that, that's actually a bargain. It's relatively cheap, uh, uh, as you can see, but you have to be clever about it. This is just talking about the actual cost. Now, I've been working with Nick Stern for some time now. More recently, he's made a point that I think is, is very important that I want to highlight here, which is that his, his earlier uh, calculations were fine in terms of uh, more or less the, the uh, sort of the, the price, one, two percent, but the actual cost, what will it cost to the economy? And we see, we even saw yesterday some figures that it's uh, this percent or that percent. Th that's really not a sensible way to compute what will happen in decades from now, because you cannot put that in dollars anymore, okay? Uh, you can see here the economic models are woefully inadequate, so severely underestimate the scale of the threat, because if you really have disasters, uh, you cannot evaluate them just in terms of, uh, of dollars. Okay. So that's a very important issue. Now, what I'm going to do before I talk about uh, working with uh, President Obama and uh, President Peña Nieto, let me j just give a, a message. That's a main message I like to give from a consensus of, of, of experts. This is climate scientists working together with economists. And we, we saw one of these figures yesterday already. This is what's to be expected towards the end of the century. That depends, of course, very much on whether we do things or not. But what I'm highlighting here is from the results from the IPCC, and it's the, the, the red or uh, orange figures there. It's what would happen with business as usual. Now, this, perhaps, you could think it's a little exaggerated. It's already bending a little bit and so on. But uh, this is the point of what, what I'm saying in the, with this on the next slide, is uh, a worry that we have. And it's really, the, the point is made to the deniers and the skeptics. As we heard yesterday also, in every society, there are extremes, people who deny climate change, people who think it's a, a tremendous worry and so on, and there are people in the middle. And normally we shouldn't worry about it, except that here the extreme denying climate change happens to be the Republicans controlling Congress. So that's why we should worry about it, okay? It's a bottleneck for international negotiations at the moment. So that's why I put here this scenario, which is the high scenario from the IPCC, because that's what would happen if we follow their advice. Just don't worry about it because uh, we need to keep jobs and so on. But look at the, the, the point being made in this figure is that temperature can rise perhaps more, but it can rise even more. And this is best perhaps described with these wheels from my colleagues at MIT. I spent many years as a professor at MIT working with, with, with this group. And the point being made here is we are, it's like a, a, like a roulette. And we are now working with a roulette here at the left. And it has a red portion, okay? The temperature might go, this is towards the end of the century, perhaps. 
you know, things are already happening with climate change, but this is just a projection of what's possible. And there is here a one in four, one in five chance that we'll go into the red portion, which is the same result as the IPCC. This is MIT's model, which is very large, very complete. It incorporates uh, an economic global model and so on. But we can, of course, change it if we stabilize CO2. This is uh, 550. Uh, 450 is, of course, what we would like to, to keep the temperature below 2 degrees. But even that would be a very large gain because we do away with the red portion. So let me summarize what this means. This means that there's one chance in five, maybe if you want one chance in 10 or so, that the temperature will go above five degrees in a few decades. And going back to Nick Stern's slide, you cannot calculate how much will that cost. It will be tremendous disasters. It will be totally unacceptable. It's, it's an unacceptable risk for society. And here particularly, again, I think of the, of the young people and I think of future generations, not just the economy. Uh, when we're talking about the future, again, sometimes people think, well, why don't you let future generations worry about it? Well, no. We, our standard of living depends on what past generations did, okay? And most people have children or, or uh, grandchildren or what have you. And if I ask them, are you willing to invest something in elementary schools? You're not going to see the return of your investment in elementary schools for decades, okay? Why the hell do you invest that? Well, of course, we want generations, future generations, to, to have at least the same opportunities that we have. So this is the main message, if you want, from, that I want to convey from the economist's perspective also, that we should not necessarily focus on the most likely temperature change. We should focus on this risk. One in five, one in 10 is totally unacceptable. Just think of airplanes, buildings, whatever. Society does not accept that type of risk. Anyhow, let me move on and tell you what would we need to really uh, decrease that risk or to reach the two degrees. Well, the best way would be to really put a, a price on emissions. And that's unlikely to happen in Paris yet, perhaps in, in, in a future COP. Again, because the US at the moment is not ready to ratify such, a, such an agreement. But from, from the economics perspective, this is a much more efficient way of reaching the goal than putting norms, regulations, and so on. That turns out to be several times more costly if you do the calculations. But of course, you need to do other things. Investments in energy technology, that's again one very important task for universities. So I'm very glad, of course, that we're working here with all the, the, the University of California with all the campuses. And you need international cooperation. And of course, there are win-win measures. And here again, this is, I want to highlight that for, for what we are uh, planning to do here at the University of California. Many things can be done currently that are win-win, but not everything. There are some things that do cost, and that's where you do need an international agreement. Okay, so moving on. Uh, Advising President Obama, well, I've been a member of PCAST with President Clinton as well. 
But with President Obama, we're very proud that uh, if we're a group of 20 scientists, but we deal with all sorts of scientific issues, and that includes uh, health issues, uh, cyber attacks, what have you, everything that you can think of connected to science. But climate change and environment is just part of it, and there are just two or three of us in the group that deal with that. Uh, Ernie Moniz was part of that group. He's now, of course, Secretary of Energy. But wh what you can see here is we made some suggestions to President Obama what to do, and we're very happy that he actually responded. Okay, the Climate Action Plan is a very important step, uh, uh, cutting carbon pollution in the U.S. Uh, another thing that happened much more recently is the, this clean power plan. And I, won't, I don't have time to go into the details, but again, even more recently, it's quite important, quite interesting that many companies are now agreeing to actively participate in, in this process. Okay. And uh, in Mexico, I've also been working particularly with the former president, Felipe Calderón, but also with Peña Nieto. And Mexico was one of the first developing countries to uh, provide an INDC, that is the plants, how, to, how much to curtail. And here again, you can see we, we were advising President Peña Nieto and, of course, the Minister of Environment and of Energy. And the, the important thing is that Mexico is com committing uh, as a country unconditionally to reduce emissions, but, of course, to reach the two degrees you would need to do more, and that's where you need uh, in some international help. Okay. And so uh, I want to make a point about communication because I think that one is terribly important. Last year, I started a project with the AAAS, uh, and it, it, with climate experts, the idea was to summarize the science so that it would be better communicated to the public. And we came up with a report, which is called What We Know. And the first point is to dismiss this uh, uh, myth that came out, I guess that we heard it, because there was a, a very large investment from the deniers in public relations to the media, so that they would always ask, well, there are some people, some scientists that think this way, but there are many others that think some other way. Well, the point is that, as you know, that there have been surveys that have been very well documented, more than 97% of the scientists very agree completely that not only that climate change is happening, but it's caused most likely by human activities. And by the way, we had time, we know the 3% very well, okay? And, <laughs> and they don't make much sense, okay? But <laughs> anyhow, but we are at risk of pushing the climate system, this is what I was just talking about, and that's what we, want, we wanted to highlight, and the, the cost is going to rise. But the final point I'm, I'm going to make is the second stage of this project we're proposing, we're proposing, we're starting to carry it out, is communicating it to the public, but it, what's important is really communicating with Congress, and they're beginning to change. They're beginning to be ready to accept a price on emissions, not a tax, don't call it a tax, but it's a price on emissions as long as it's revenue neutral. So that's beginning to be a possibility. But the way we're going about this, as scientists, we don't communicate very well. So we're working with professional communicators because the public has a different language, 
they, as we heard yesterday, we have to motivate them. But I think the very important motivation here is for their children, for future generations. So we have high hopes that activities like this, coupled with activities like the ones we're engaging here, the University of California setting an example, California as a state setting an example to contrast what U.S. Congress is doing. Because in the world, there's still the perception that the U.S. is sort of not very active here. That's why California's activities are really crucial. So I very much commend you, and let's keep working at it. Thank you very much. We have time for just a few questions. And by the way, that was the best two minutes I've ever delegated. Yeah. Yes, Commissioner, right over here. Thank you, Dr. Molina, for your, your leadership and your, your talk. Um, you touched on just very briefly that we should focus on the electricity sector, which I happen to agree with. But there are a lot of folks who would say, no, we should go focus on transportation first. I wonder if you could comment on why uh, you're singling out the electricity sector. Okay. But, um Perhaps the main point here, and it goes back to our colleagues in, in Princeton with their wedges reducing emissions. The main point is that uh, you have to do many things simultaneously. So I wouldn't do one uh, instead of the other or keep uh, more present. Trans both transportation and energy, they're of course related, are terribly important. As well as, uh, of course, energy efficiency, okay. But you have to do all of them simultaneously, and even more, of course, you have to work on CCS, carbon uh, capture and storage, but that's not yet uh, practical, it's, it's too expensive. But one of the main points there is that society is not investing enough in technology, given the size of the problem. But energy, of course, that's what we have in front of us. That's, that's why, when working with the Mexican government, we are suggesting what to do next, which is use perhaps more gas than, than, than dirty oil. But that's a transition solution, okay? You cannot look, see that as, as a permanent solution, and there is a tendency to do that. So you really want to have a short-term plan as well as a long-term vision. But I, I wouldn't favor energy over transportation. And transportation, there's a lot of progress, of course, with electrical buses, cars, and so on. But uh, it, it's, as we heard yesterday, one of the big challenges because of the concentration of energy in the fuel to have short-term solutions. Just the last word here, like President Obama, you can set standards. And that's, of course, important. It's a good way ahead. But that's certainly not the cheapest way to go about it, okay? It would be much better to have just an, a, a price on all emissions. Mario, those are brilliant comments. Thanks so much for doing Dan Kamen, UC Berkeley. And I wanted to ask you, I was delighted to see the carbon pricing, in which I agree. And I wonder what you think would be the impact if the University of California system uh, adopted carbon pricing, perhaps in two stages, where we would study the areas where we know how to do the pricing today, and then we would make the areas where it's less clear a research topic, but commit over time to adopting internal pricing, at least as a business requirement, as I worked on at the World Bank, but moving that ahead as part of our agenda. Sure. I, I think that's a very good idea. 
in fact, I should have mentioned the Mexican government. There is a carbon price in Mexico. At the moment, it's nominal, but it's just a way to get started. And as you know, several countries have it. And so, some uh, companies, some oil companies have it as well as a shadow price. So I think that's a great idea. Just a word of caution, because here in the United States, sometimes it's misinterpreted. It should not be meant to be the actual price of, that, that of the damage. It's just a number so that you can get started in a reasonable way, but it's not what it costs to society. As long as you recognize that, I think it's a very great idea. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.